0: Welcome to Planet Poetry, the new podcast about poets and poetry. I'm Robin Houghton.
1: And I'm Peter Kenny.
0: And today we're looking at the family, parents in particular, how they shape our lives and our writing.
1: They may not mean to, but they do. In this issue, we feature a fascinating interview with Pascale Petit talking about life and poetry and her parents and the tiger girl that was her grandmother.
0: We'll also be talking about what we've been enjoying reading lately.
1: But home's a good place to start, isn't it? A good place to start exploring, planet, poetry. Well, before we get to that, to get us in the right mood, are you gonna read us a poem, Robin?
0: I am. I'm going to read a poem called The Sun. And this is by Mary Oliver, a much loved, much respected poet who died just last year She was a a prolific writer and I think every poet has got at least one book by Mary Oliver on their shelf. The Son The son my father never had, lived with me, secretly. Before sleep I thought of him, with his strong wrists, with his eyes. My mother's body, too torn from the expulsion to bear again, fed me but the longing was clear. Soon, I could fight like a boy. I could shoot a gun. I could get lost and find my way home. I could not name the things I was afraid of, like my own body, cranky and mysterious as water. Of course, I dreamed a miracle would happen. How they loved him, his swagger, his long legs. So in the end, I must pity them, I suppose, for the sorrow that hangs in the air even now when I greet them as kindly as I can in my happiness, in my soft body, in my long and shining hair. For it was all true, the miracle of myself, their dreams, their despair.
1: Yikes. That sort of idea that you're the wrong sex and somehow not quite what they wanted. Writing about family members can be tricky. I remember uh, my grandmother used to mock my poetic efforts when I first began. To the point oh, no, of, that's terrible. Well, she used to literally take the piece of paper I was working on and read it aloud in a mocking voice. However, her, um, all that changed when I got started getting poems published and published one about her, and suddenly she became my greatest advocate. How about you, Robin? Have you written about family much?
0: Oh, that's terrible. I, I feel for you there. I, I have. My mother, in fact, does feature in poems occasionally, but only since she died. And oh. uh, whereas my sister, for some reason, often pops up, and she's certainly still alive. Interestingly, I heard it said that Mary Oliver never used to write poems about her family or anything remotely. Confessional, but that all changed apparently after her parents died. So that that could be quite telling, couldn't it?
1: Yeah, that's interesting. It's a bit like Thomas Hardy. He only started writing passionate love poems about his wife after she died too. Something quite liberating about dying, really. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we should all do it someday. <laughs> <laughs> now let's hear what Pascal Petit had to say when Peter spoke with her recently.
1: Pascal Petit has just released her eighth collection of poems, Tiger Girl. Her last collection, Mama Amazonica, won the Ondarchi Prize, the Royal Society of Literature's award for a work of fiction or non-fiction or poetry, best evoking the spirit of a place. It's just one of a host of well-deserved recognitions and awards that Pascal's work has received. I find it hard to read Pascal's work without thinking of paintings by Henri Rousseau, there is a mysterious lushness, a teeming world of plants and creatures, a kind of Eden, from the Parisian Zoo of Fauvry and the Zoo Father to the forests of Mama Amazonica. Sometimes I imagine the fertility of her language is an attempt to push back at deforestation. If this is a kind of Eden of the imagination, then it is one with two scary giants stalking it. The figures of her mother and father loom over so much of what she writes, helping to bring a wild and electrical emotional charge to the poetry. In her latest collection, Tiger Girl, we encounter a new character, her grandmother, her tiger gran, and Pascal explores her Indian heritage and the fauna and flora of subcontinental jungles. So, Pascal Petit, I'm delighted to welcome you to the podcast.
2: Oh, hello, Peter. Thank you for interviewing me.
1: Well, the honour's all mine. I've been a long-standing fanboy, so this is. uh, I'm just trying not to sound too gushing. (laughs) (laughs) So, we're chatting at a time of COVID lockdown and so on. Mm. Um, How have you coped and has it affected the way you work?
2: Uh, It certainly has, yes. I'm someone who normally, the minute that I finish one book, I start the next. And I was just finishing Tiger Girl and then absolute shock and uh, I wouldn't call it a block because I think it's um, my mind kind of rejigging itself, (laughs) recalibrating. So, So much of my writing depends on travel for one thing. Yes. And not writing about home. So for me to write about the locale of home which, which was, isn't my home, but is a new one. Um, it's a hard thing for me to do. And yeah, I, I'm just, I mean, I, I'm in shock because also COVID comes from animals. Uh, they think that it comes from bats, maybe via pangolins. They're not sure. Um, but, but th- this kind of, you know, animals are my big passion in life and. Yeah. Um, and to think that there is such a mismatch between the animal world is just brought into huge relief that animals have been so tortured and uh you know that we're they're getting viruses that we're getting and they're being squeezed into smaller and smaller forests, so yeah, I need to take all this in really.
1: Actually, I hadn't thought about the consequences of of COVID actually do feed into the river of your work. I can see you writing Mm. poems about it in the future. In my introduction, I suppose it was a bit obvious to to mention Eden, but what I was trying Mm. to suggest was that kind of mythical hugeness of the world you create. How did your imagery become so fertile and so crammed with such a plethora of life?
2: All I can do is guess because I don't know.
1: I'll grant you your poetic
2: license. <laughs> <laughs> um a, a few things occur to me. I had a big contrast in my infancy. When I when I was a um a two-month-old baby, I was taken from maybe a, a home um children's home in Paris to my grandmother in Mid Wales who had a big garden and lots of animals. And then when I was two and a half years old I was sent back to Paris. And so, there must have been an Eden there in my head, I think mm. and Paris was awful <laughs> for the um for the time that I was there as a little child, and I was always from taken from home to home and And then, when I was seven, I came back to my grandmother's for seven years, and then, when I was thirteen or fourteen, we had to go and live with my mother again. Uh, and this was in South Wales. And that was awful for me, um, as a teenager. And to survive, I made these kind of places in my head where I could hide. And so I'd naturally, when I was in, in mid Wales with my grandmother, I had naturally done things like make little, um, huts. In, in the hedges you know and and um under under tree roots and things like that and w- when i when i was going to grow up i was going to become a hermit and live in the woods that was my idea and and, and then um i discovered the romantic poets at school and keats in particular mm. and keats ode to a nightingale uh, was like a friend and i see that poem as being a vast... Well, I see all his work as being a forest, a wood, that expands, that is organic and grows outwards. And I don't know if that's what was meant, but that's what, how I perceived it. And I think I built, started building that forest in my head.
1: I absolutely adore Keats for that very same reason, actually, Ojo and yeah. Nightingale, yeah. particularly. Yeah. I understand that your first sort of artistic expression and those, you know, you were imagining these worlds that you really came to poetry after painting and making sculpture at the Mm. Royal College of Art. And also you've been in a sort of long poetic dialogue with Frida Kahlo in The Wounded Deer and through to What the Water Gave Me. How important was that visual training and, Mm. and how did it alter the way you write?
2: I think it totally formed the way that I wrote because I I guess there were two things that were encouraged and were the education at art school. So I had six years at art school. And the first one is looking, 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 looking. You You could never look hard enough at something and actually see it. So you're training your eye. And the second thing was being able to go into a room and make a world of your own in that room. And so those two things were, were my were my training as a poet, I think. And I, I, I was a sculptor at first. I, I was still writing, but I would spend a year as a sculptor, then a then a year as a as a writer, and so they would alternate. And eventually, I think the poems became the sculptures for me.
1: Mm. In this edition of the podcast, we're touching on this business about parents and how parents affect people's writing. I can't think of anyone else in the UK at the moment whose writing is so informed by that relationship. What is it about those relationships with your parents that just Mm. won't let go of you?
2: Yeah, Um, what I think it might be is that maybe because of my grandmother, uh, I have uh, my base feeling about humanity is that we are essentially good. However, my father in particular did really bad things and my mother also was very destructive towards me. So so I, I guess that um, in my books, I'm exploring why uh, they did bad things and trying to redeem them.
1: I, I'm going to ask you to read the poem um, Autoland from Fovary. I remember being in the audience when you read this at the T.S. Eliot readings, and the whole of the room in the Royal Festival Hall fell into such a profound hush. It was amazing. An Autoland, for those listeners who may not be up on their ornithology, is a tiny sparrow-like bunting eaten as a delicacy in France. Sorry, I don't, to, I don't mean to introduce the poem for you.
2: But- <laughs> <laughs> That's lovely. Thank you. Um, yes, I wrote it after at this time for several years. I was spending quite a lot of time in Paris because I love Paris as a <laughs> as a um, adult now. Um, uh, initially I went to Paris to visit my father who was dying of emphysema and who'd contacted me after 35 years total vanishing. And first of all there was there was a little um little street in the Latin Quarter called Rue Ortalant. And I had no idea what an Autolan was at that point. But but um later I stayed at um Rue de Bievre. And I remember I, I wrote to Les Murray at, at that time and said, Oh, I'm staying, I'm actually in Paris in a little tiny um room in Rue de, B- de Bièvre and he said and he wrote back to me and he said, Do you know that that's where uh Francois Mitterrand lived? Uh, in Rue de Bievre and Rue de Bievre was originally an underground little river that went to the Seine and then he told me about the story about the Autelan and that uh, Mitterrand ate an Autelan before he died. Uh, I'm not sure if it was before he died but mm. it might have been. Uh, so so this was behind this poem. My mm. father was t- very traditionally French and he was uh, a gourmet as well autolan when the doctor says it's just a matter of weeks my father arranges to have a chef brought in with an autolan still singing in its cage it's been blinded for a month fattened on maize father watches while Armagnac is poured in a bowl and the bird plunged in and drowned. He thinks that death will be like this, a singing in the dark, then the pop of a few last bubbles, while the olive-gold feathers of his body are plucked, his feet snapped off. Eight minutes he waits while the bunting roasts. Then it's rushed sizzling to his lips, a white napkin draped over his head to envelope him in vapours. The whole singer in his mouth, every hot note. The crispy fat melts, the bones are crunchy as hazelnuts. When the bitter organs burst on his tongue in a bouquet of ambrosia, He can taste his entire life, heather from the Kabylie mountains, Marseille's salt air, lavender from Provence. He's flying through high clouds to his nesting ground. Five years he's been confined to this small room, grown thinner despite the oxygen-rich tubes. His lungs burning around the mute songbird of his heart.
1: I I just love that poem so much. It seems to um condense pity and you know his sophistication and cruelty all kind of neatly woven into that poor little bird there being swallowed. I'd like to to ask you to read from Mama Amazonica's If Foveri was more focused on your father, Mama Amazonica's it's your mother, isn't it, really?
2: Yes, indeed, yes.
1: Uh, maybe, maybe the clue's in the title, isn't it, really? Um, <laughs> it's also but, uh,
2: the, the Amazon mother as well, yes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, um, would you mind reading My Mother's Wedding Dress?
2: My Mother's Wedding Dress I found the remnants of the dress you made for your wedding to my father. Couldn't imagine the nights spent in the woods gathering cobwebs from bushes, a harvest of lace spirals, zigzagged orbs, and the hawthorn you picked Choosing only stems with the longest spines. I tried to picture you in the Mary, with your groom in his ivory suit. Years later, you'd say, I married in black. But I thought of the love needed to fasten those webs over the thorns. The steel strength of the spider must have been your strength shielding the embryo inside. How once dew must have glittered on the dirty fabric. It was as if you'd created night's garments and were honouring the dark even as it spun itself around your body in radials and interstices. A shroud he would have to tear from you, but only after you had vanished, and the cells that were me in their crib of silk were absailed away under a folded leaf until it was safe. He would have found your flesh dry as dust, breasts light as dandelion clocks. He would have had to crush your necklace of owl's eggs. Your bracelet of moths—the
1: fragility of your mother—is and the the predatory nature of your father just are so wedded in that. Could I also ask you from that collection to read a uh, corpse flower, please?
2: I think I'd just—I mean, I've seen a corpse flower in uh, Kew Gardens, and I'd seen one in the Eden Project as well. Just before mm. writing this. Incredible flowers from Sumatra, I think. Corpse Flower Some people have mothers. I have a corpse flower, her corm buried in the soil of my heart, where every hurt is stored huge and heavy. I always know when she's about to erupt, because the sweat bees land on my face. Flesh flies crawl in my mouth. Overnight, she shoots through the top of my scalp, rearing into the sky. I wake to the stench of carrion. Her one petal surrounding the monstrous spike is wide as a ballroom gown. The pleats meet red. The outside green as she once was, when the screw worm took her dancing. Frilly wraparound that fell away when my father pushed her face down on the bed, revealing stigma brodery. Some people have mothers, I have a titan arum. The full skirt of her spade, rotting until all that's left is the red stump. Bearing toxic fruit,
1: do you think of your poetry or the resultant poems that come out of that as a kind of toxic fruit
2: <laughs> well that one is yeah um i I have to be honest in my poems, and um, mm. um, there was so much toxic toxicity um, yeah, and how how to excuse it
1: your work seems to flow organically from book to book it may be a bit of a a cheeky question but do you ever fancy just flying off at a tangent and writing about a trip to the laundrette or something
2: (laughs) Hmm. if i could write a poem that was many layered about it yes sure
1: I'm not for a second suggesting you should. I do picture a river, you know, of your work. It's so fertile and curves through the subject matter, and uh, on each bank, it's just lush with just loveliness. And um, I wouldn't want you to change that. But
2: oh, maybe um, I do, maybe I do write about trips to the laundrette, but they they don't end up in books.
1: <laughs> <I
2: don't
1: know. laughs> the, 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 yeah, Pascal Petit, the Lost Laundrette Book. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I've just I've had your new collection Tiger Girl for a few days, and I, I'm really enjoying it. it. It seems that your grandmother had a, a fierce love for you, and this is reciprocated in your poems. Yeah. Am I right to say this comes from a, a less comp- a complicated sort of love? Isn't it? There's a, an unconditionalness about your love for her that um, can't exist for your parents.
2: Yeah, it wasn't unconditional, actually.
1: Ah, okay. Um,
2: but. It, but it was real love. I mean, I know, you know, mother love is meant to be unconditional. Um, mm. but, but, you know, there were conditions. For example, um, if you're naughty, you'll go back to Paris. Oh,
1: gosh. Yeah. You, know,
2: you know, there were conditions and I had to work in the garden. But the fact is, I loved working in the garden. So that was fine. Um, but, but it was, it was very uncomplicated. Um, I I simply felt loved by her, you, you know, even though I was sent away in the end. Mm. That's because she couldn't cope with teenagers and she was getting old and she was tired. Yeah. Um, but but she had given, she, she absolutely saved my life, you know. Mm. Whatever she had, whatever love she gave me, taught me how to love the world, the natural world, uh, and maybe how to love people, you know. <laughs> Um, so I I owe her a great deal.
1: It has a bit of a personal resonance for me as well because my uh, grandfather, who died when I was young, was born in India, and um, he'd always concealed the fact that he he was partly Bengali as well. Um,
2: Yeah, it was a big secret for my grandmother.
1: Yeah, uh, it was was for him too. (laughs) It was so bizarre, Mm. Um, you know, judging by today's standards, you know. Mm. I I remember the the day I found out about it, which was quite a bit after he died, I I really celebrated because I suddenly felt less vanilla. (laughs) I I became suddenly more interesting in my own mind anyway. In in the poem Tiger Gran, we see your grandmother in Wales. I really like the little flashes of domesticity in this poem. Mm even though she's sort of betraying elements of her dual heritage.
2: Yes. Um, shall I read that?
1: Yes, if you, if you would. I'm all agog.
2: <laughs> Tiger Gran. My grandmother of the flying electric blanket who speaks Hindi in her sleep, who has Garyals in her black eyes, behind steamed-up glasses, a long nose like a mountain between two countries, one hot, one cold, who mothered me when I was newborn and saved me from going to the bad. My grandmother, who returned me to my mother twice, which meant orphanage, which meant other people's homes. My grandmother, who took me back for seven years from age seven, who saved my life. Praise to the mothering of my tigress. My grandmother who works at the chippy, who takes in neighbors' washing, who cleans big houses, who makes me work in the garden for my keep, for whom I would weed the world, for whom I would pump the seven, To save her black hybrids, for she is a hybrid rose who has been saved. My grandmother, who keeps a jungle folded in her greenhouse, who lets me join her in its heat heart, my grandmother, whom I catch peeing among the plant pots, who explains she has only one kidney and can't always make it to our toilet. My grandmother whose hair fell out when they removed her kidney without anaesthetic while she was pregnant with my uncle. My grandmother who shouts, avert your eyes when she undresses, so I won't see the permanent tan under her clothes. My grandmother with a curse of second sight, but the blessing of second birth to her father's wife so her real mother, the maid, would not be stoned. My grandmother, who was left alone in a jungle tent by her white stepmother for the tiger to eat, who, when we are riding the winged blanket, tells me how she watched the vision enter and reached out to touch its dazzle, who was spared because she was not afraid, who held the wonder's gaze, and saw its icicle teeth drip on the red tongue at the gate of paradise, but did not go down that carpet into the tunnel. My tawny grandma, with as many wrinkles as tributaries in the Ganges, her face the map of India when it's summer, the map of Wales in winter. And sometimes... Her wrinkles are stripes that scare me if I look at her when she is flying the tales of her stories. She who was left to run wild by her doting father when she wasn't slaving for his white family. Who I am allowed to cuddle so I can sleep. My grandmother, the tiger girl, the untouchable.
1: Uh, I really feel like I know her from that poem. It just conveys such a strength of personality. I, I love that.
2: She she was um, indeed a very strong character. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, so finally, uh, like Mama Amazonica, a tiger girl engages with ecology and feels the pain of shrinking forests. How easy is it for you to blend the personal with global concerns, such as deforestation and climate change? Mm,
2: it comes naturally because... Um, I don't know, maybe when I was a baby with my grandmother, I saw the animals and I bonded with them. And uh, for me, I just grew up bonding with animals and finding solace in them. As as I got older, realizing that animals are, are really vanishing and their habitats, their homes are vanishing. And you know the big garden, my grandmother's garden, which was like the world, uh, is vanishing. And so it just seems like horrific to me that that how can that be? I mean, it just isn't possible. You know, it, it's it's like this planet might end up without animals and forests and healthy seas.
1: It's unimaginably horrible, isn't it?
2: Yeah. Uh. I think I don't. I don't know how, really, how I, how the two merge, but the, yeah. they do in my mind.
1: By the magic of poetry, that's how. So, because um, in the, the the new collection, there's uh, poems about extinction rebellion, yeah. called hashtag extinction rebellion. There's another one I, I particularly like called Flash Forest. On uh, w- would you mind reading that for us?
2: Well I wrote, I wrote this it's one of the, one of the last poems that I wrote in the book because it was oh I think it was last christmas when the australian bush in new south wales was on fire and the amazon was also on fire and so the horror of all these forests going up in flames flash forests Just as an orphaned fawn will huddle against a wooden deer used for target practice. So I cling to you, my grandmother, while all around us the forests burn. It is I who turned the world ash yggtrasil to ashes. I who watched on plasma screens, as koalas charred. I who saw sloths with rare ecosystems, on their upside-down fur, cremated in backdrafts. Let me be your bat pup, and you can be my ficus religiosa. I'm hugging what's left. Aerial roots. Of your hair I once buried my face in. I'll roost under your prayer leaves until the flames come.
1: Thank you, Pascal. That's that's beautiful. When I was reading that the the other day, that image of the orphan fawn with the target mother that literally made me cry. <laughs> um, there's something very powerful about that poem. I, I love it. Thank you. So, well, I'd like to um, thank you so much, Pascal, for joining us on the podcast. It's been truly a wonderful experience talking to you. And um, well,
2: thank you so much for all your kind, kind comments.
1: I wish you well with Tiger Girl, and look forward to the, uh, the forthcoming volume of COVID poetry, or <laughs> however that's going to manifest itself. Thank you so much. I've always been a massive fanboy of hers. I, I don't know if you could tell in the interview, Robin.
0: <laughs> well, yes, but uh, you know, we only like to interview the poets that we admire, don't we? So there's nothing wrong with that. Gosh, it was interesting, wasn't it? I mean, Pascal's had this uh a, a difficult childhood moving from pillar to post, and clearly the relationship with her mother and her grandmother were central to her, but I was I was, I was very moved by the poem that she, her, my mother's wedding dress was, uh, mm. and I think you pointed out, you know, it sort of spelt out the fragility of her mother. And, and then later when she was talking about her father having a destructive attitude and how she wrote about his death, gosh, yes, that, uh, was it Autoland, the poem, yeah.
1: I remember we were at uh, the Royal Festival Hall and we saw that together, didn't we? And I just, yeah. uh, as I said in the interview, there was a sort of this kind of charged hush. Well, one of the things I found interesting about talking to her was the fact that I've always resonated with her work. I've always felt it spoke to me. And actually the details in her childhood, like this idea of being moved from place to place and living with your grandparents, even down to the fact of having you know, a grandparent who was Indian, I share all those things as well. And it's sort of a some kind of an instinctive response, maybe that, yeah, you know, you, you find a poet who's a kindred spirit, but yeah. she's saying things in such an expressive way. Did you know that about her
0: background when you first started reading her work, or was it something that you felt it spoke to you without knowing explicitly why why that was?
1: Yeah, I, d- I didn't really know too too much about her other than you know these books full of this sort of fertility of the imagination, and I have heard people say that. She's got such a tone of voice and a, a way of writing that her, you know, her books are, are quite similar in a way. But what else would she write? You know, she writes so powerfully. One of the things about a really good poet, I think, is that, you know, you read them and you think that could be nobody else. Yeah. You read a Pascal poem and you think it has her fingerprints all over it.
0: <laughs> but is it I mean, is it also true that we've all got our style? You know, one doesn't see it in oneself, but as we develop as poets, we're in a certain groove. I mean, all, are all our books going to be about the same thing? Not, not about the same thing, but there's they're going to have a, a commonality of, of style or something. And mm. and maybe we do all write poems about one thing. You know, maybe we've all got one thing that we write about.
1: I, I like the way she was saying about writing books. She approaches her poetry as a book. Uh, whereas you know certainly f- for myself I don't think I've got to that point I just write poems and hope somehow that they'll speak to each other. <laughs> me,
0: me neither I know people say when have you got a collection coming out and I just think oh, I've got enough poems for a collection and that's a mature poet isn't it? that's exactly how real poets think you know they think about the next book. Yes when when Pascal talked about her training as a as a sculptor at her years at art school and how the one thing that they were taught was really was that you can never look hard enough at anything you can never look for too long you'll never pick up everything there is to see um and to go into a room and make it your own world if you like uh I I just thought that that was that summed it up pretty well that's I feel that's sort of what I'm striving for as a, as a, as a writer you know you, you want to hone in and suck everything out of something and see everything somehow yeah but, uh, it never seems to quite work for me
1: yeah again i identify with that i did a level art you know she she did lots of things i did but just a bazillion times better <laughs> and when i listened again to the interview I, I just thought you know she's such a generous person and so happy to to share her work and be open yeah i agree you know, I came away and thought about, you know, our conversation for a long time in real life afterwards. So I hope our podcast listeners (laughs) get something from it as well.
0: Sure they will. So Peter, what have you been reading? Have you got a, a book that you'd like to recommend
1: Yeah, I'd like to recommend Home Farm by Janet Sutherland. Oh, I love her work. This is the fourth of her books, her her third book, which is called Bone Monkey. was driven by this Loki-like mischievous character. Home Farm is based in the, the farm that she grew up in. The way she talks about it is quite magical and and also sort of archetypical somehow that there's this farm seems to be timeless and also the relationships in it it's almost a bit like a benign dh lawrence you know there's this sense of the farm out there and all the animals and the world and things going on um without the troubling uh, sexual politics following on our theme of the podcast which is about family parental relationships there's a gorgeous little poem in it about her mother, this poem's called If. If a book is broken, your mother can mend it using broad tape that feels like cotton. She can place her hand on yours and put the torn edges together, can feather them in till the rough white patches bind and the letters join. If a book is broken, your mother can find out which is the last page and which is the first, and she can put the last page back in the right place if a book is broken your mother can fix it i just think that's just so great about them that way that your mother can put your life together again in the yeah. way that no one else can
0: it's so uh, comforting isn't it yeah it's beautiful
1: there's a picture on the front cover of it comes from an old illustrated anatomical a picture of a cow sort of sawn in half so you can see all its interior. Home Farm goes back into history and goes into nature and goes into the relationships. And it creates a sort of whole world and I, I really enjoy dipping in and out of it. I love poetry that creates a world like that. Like pascal, yeah. Pascal's pascal got Pascal world, definitely. And Janet, especially in this Home Farm, this this book just creates a world that you want to keep going back to.
0: Hmm. Well, then there's some poets who create worlds you don't want to go back to, but um, I was going to talk about um, something I've been dipping into a lot lately, which is Kim Adonizio, uh, her new and selected, which is called Wild Nights. And Kim is an American poet who I first came across, I think, at the Albra Festival a few years ago. And then again, last year, she read at the Cork Poetry Festival and she's um, I mean the cover of the book and I've seen other I think profile photo on her website where she's kind of Madonna-esque Ma- I'm thinking of Madonna in the in the Desperately Seeking Susan you know with the hair and the the bits and the and lace the, gloves the leather yeah the lace gloves and the sort of leather race bracelets and things sort of there's this picture of her kind of perched in, in some sort of scuzzy looking kitchen with the bottles of whiskey and the faggots and everything <laughs> <laughs> it's just like this really kind of louche kind of uh, image which i immediately thought oh wow you know she's someone i'd like to have as a friend and um <laughs> but, but her purchase um it's just stunning and it's it just sort of really grabs me and a lot of the poems are about uh relationship broken up relationships usually or are they bitter and twisted
1: or are they
0: there is there is a and twisted, but but it's also very creative i mean there's there's one poem about a woman who's clearly doing operating some kind of phone sex business from her home, and she's got the baby crying in the next room, and and the guy on the other end of the phone is taking ages, and it turns out he's in a wheelchair, and it's just really bizarre.
1: That sounds so girly. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, but she's also written some beautiful, tender poems, you know, to do with her daughter, and uh, it's not all terrible but she throws in a lot of uh, ideas symbols images from from real life i suppose if you like the opposite of creating a a dream world or or looking back at the
1: past i suppose it's all a bit contemporary uh how do men come out of it is it one of those men are all
0: no i don't think it's a man yes i know what you mean it's i wouldn't say that at all she's just got a very sharp eye a sense of irony a great sense of humor black, ho- black humor mostly.
1: Hmm.
0: Um, but um, I'll read, I'll, should i read, i read this one anyway. This is a um, oh. death poem. I had the idea of death as a theme for one of our podcasts, but I think <laughs> maybe, should bring them in. <laughs> but then there's enough death anywhere it's, it, it, around in the world, in the poetry world anywhere. And that's, this is what this is about. I think so. It's actually called death poem. Do I have to bring it up again? Isn't there another subject? Can I forget about the scrap of flattened squirrel fur fluttering on the road? Can I forget the road and how I can't stop driving no matter what, not even for gas or love? Can I please not think about my father left in some town behind me in his blue suit with his folded hands and my grandmother moaning about her bladder and swallowing all the pills and the towns I'm passing now Can I try not to see them? The children squatting by the ditches, the holes in their chests and foreheads, the woman cradling her tumour, the dog dragging its crippled hips. I can close my eyes and sit back if I want to. I can lean against my friend's shoulders and eat as they're eating and drink from the bottle being passed back and forth. I can lighten up, can't I? Christ, can't I? There is another subject. In a minute, I'll think of it. I will. And if you know it, help me, help me, remind me why I'm here.
1: God, yeah. <laughs> I look, yeah. That idea of trying to escape from grief, but just travelling into more grief. Something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the like plea uh, at the end is quite moving. I
0: know. I know. So uh yeah Kim Adonizio I um
1: never heard of her but that that was a, I really enjoyed that poem
0: She's a you you'd enjoy you'd enjoy her work I think yeah good fun more
1: well, fun So much to read isn't there that's the that's it's the too problem much.
0: It's too much and now that I'm preparing for my da 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 new course at York University <laughs> I've got a huge pile of books I ought to mention also Don Patterson's um I mean I I'm a bit of a you know you're a fanboy of Pascal Petit, I'm a fangirl of Don Patterson uh, of his work, but he's um this huge tome of a book called The Poem, mm. <laughs> which is nine hundred nine hundred pages long, I think. A third of the Could way it, to do it. And I'm really I'm really enjoying it. It's half of it. I I have to look up so many words. I literally have to look up at least one word in every sentence to find out what the hell it means, but uh, but I can sort of read it like poetry. I, I don't feel I need to know exactly everything he's talking about. It just flows over me in a in a cloud of dondom.
1: <laughs> that sounds good, actually. When I was doing philosophy, which in retrospect I'm singularly unsuited to, but. <laughs> I used to read some of the the philosophical work like poetry as well. somebody like Wittgenstein or something was so yeah. impenetrable that you know if you treated it as a poem, you might get some kind of meaning from it
0: i think that I think that's right.
1: <laughs> the, the tractatus logico philosophicus is oh my one God. of the yeah. <laughs>